You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. Welcome to this edition of the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Caroline Mars, MD, on behalf of her co-authors from the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas, to discuss their recent paper, Zika Virus and Pregnancy, a review of the literature and clinical considerations. While the Zika virus has been identified since the 1940s, a sharp increase in cases in South America in 2015 has garnered international attention. Especially important is the potential association of maternal Zika virus infection during pregnancy and the risk of fetal transmission and fetal disease. Accompanying this increase in case identification in South America, there has been a sharp increase in the identification of cases of neonatal microcephaly for which the Zika virus has been implicated as the etiology. Dr. Mars and her colleagues have summarized what is known about the Zika virus in early 2016 as well as the implications of Zika virus for women who are pregnant and planning pregnancy. Dr. Mars, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Can you briefly summarize what some of the human diseases in adults that have been associated with Zika virus infection? Yeah, so I think most people know is that most of the time the infection is actually asymptomatic, probably about 80% of the time. Those who do have symptoms, it's almost like a flu-like illness, fever, headache, and a rash, sometimes conjunctivitis. There's small case reports of Guillain-Barre syndrome that have been suspected to be linked to Zika virus. And just a few days ago, The Lancet published a case control study that kind of strengthened that link. So it's pretty likely that Zika virus can cause Guillain-Barre syndrome, although not commonly. Do you know of any long-term effects associated with the Zika virus? So if somebody recovers, do we think there's any long-term disease? I haven't seen anything that implicates long-term effects for adults, at least. How does the Zika virus compare to other perinatal viral infections? Are there other related viruses that we know about or we've historically seen similar to the Zika virus? Yeah, there's a lot of other congenital viruses that we know much more about. A couple of viruses that we know cause intracranial calcifications, for example, on ultrasound, would be cytomegalovirus and rubella. Those are also more harmful to the fetus when infection occurs in the first trimester, which is what we're seeing so far with Zika virus. And then some other arboviruses. There's a virus called chikungunya, which is not a flavid virus, but it is an arbovirus, meaning carried by mosquitoes. And it has a lot of similarities to Zika virus, both in kind of the clinical illness that it causes and where it's endemic because it's carried by the same mosquito. But it has been associated with a microcephaly, not to the extent we're seeing with Zika virus, just some really small reports, but it does have some effects on the developing fetal brain. As we know, in early 2016, what are the suspected modes of transmission of Zika virus? Patients often ask, how do I get this virus? And can you describe what we think we know about how Zika is transmitted at this point? The most likely mode of transmission is the mosquito bite. That we know for sure. The only other mode that we actually have evidence for is sexual transmission. And really, that's only two case reports of human cases of sexual transmission and then one study where Zika virus was isolated in semen. And so 
there's not a whole lot of evidence out there. We don't know the incidence, how likely it is. There's some question about how long the virus persists in semen. There was a report that the semen remains positive for Zika virus weeks beyond it being positive in the man's blood. And so concerned that perhaps sexual transmission is possible weeks beyond the initial illness for the man, which is a little frightening. So that still needs to be investigated. But the thought is that the sexual transmission is much less likely than by mosquito bite. Those are the ones we actually know for sure. And then hypothetically, there's a risk by transfusion. We actually don't have a confirmed case of transmission by transfusion in the literature. There is a case being investigated in Brazil at the moment, but the possibility is definitely there. There was a study in French Polynesia where they tested the blood of about 1,500 asymptomatic blood donors as just kind of a survey, and they found that 3% were positive for Zika virus, and a small percentage of those people actually became symptomatic a few days after they donated blood. So the risk is there, and certain precautions need to be taken, which is difficult because there's not a approved screening test for Zika virus that we can use on transfused blood. So the AABB, uh, which was formerly known as the American Association of Blood Banks, has recommended that potential donors just self-defer for 28 days after travel into regions that are endemic to Zika virus. They're not changing the questionnaire or anything like that, but they're kind of educating donors that they should defer from donating for 28 days and then kind of educating them on the symptoms of Zika virus. So should they develop symptoms after donating to then contact the donation center and let them know. And that's the way we're going to try and protect the blood supply in America, at least. And then there's also a question of whether there's transmission by breast milk. This hasn't really been studied, and it's an area that I find particularly interesting. There's reports of breast milk testing positive for Zika virus by PCR, which just tells us that the virus genome is present, but it doesn't really tell us whether the breast milk is actually infectious or not. You know, you would need to do a cell culture to prove that. But I think it's really important to, to answer that question because the neonatal brain is still rapidly developing. And so if, if it was possible to transmit Zika virus through breast milk to a neonate, we really don't know what the effects of Zika infection on a newborn's brain would be. So I think that's really important. One thing we don't feel is a high risk for transmission, if I'm correct, is close person-to-person -person contact seems to be unlikely to be a source for transmission. That's correct. There's no evidence that close contact spreads the virus, and you know, related viruses are not spread that way either, so that's really not a concern at this time. And so the bulk of this transmission seems to be from a specific species of mosquito. Where does that mosquito live, and should we be worried about that in the United States and other areas in the world where the virus is not currently active? The mosquito that carries Zika virus is called Aedes aegypti, and there's another species called Aedes albopictus, which can also carry it just less commonly than the Aedes aegypti. They're clearly endemic in South America, but the CDC has a map online that shows that they are actually endemic in a large part of the southeastern and eastern United States, including South Texas, where I live. Uh, we have no confirmed cases of local transmission of Zika virus, meaning no transmission from mosquito to human in the continental United States. The American women that have confirmed infection have traveled to one of the endemic areas. That being said, the mosquitoes are here. There's a lot of international travel. I wouldn't be surprised if we had local transmission in the next year in America. 
I think we've all seen a lot of attention on either social media or traditional media sites about this epidemic of microcephaly and fetal complications associated with Zika virus. Can you briefly describe what the true scope of this problem is, such as the what's the incidence of microcephaly, what have the trends been, how many affected babies do we think are happening, and where are most of these cases happening? The vast majority of the cases so far have been identified in Brazil. There are numerous cases in Colombia, too. That data is a little bit lagging, probably because the virus spread there a little bit later, so we can expect to see more data coming from Colombia in the next six months. The hard part is we actually don't know what the incidence is. We actually don't know, even know what the incidence of Zika virus infection is. It hasn't been studied prior to this outbreak, so we're kind of playing catch-up with data collection. So how many pregnant women because it can be asymptomatic, how many pregnant women actually have Zika virus infection, we're not really sure. How many women who have Zika virus infection will go on to have a affected fetus, we're not really sure. Those are the big questions that actually, that's what we're trying to find out right now with the epidemiologic studies that are, that are going on in South America. It was the Brazilian Ministry of Health when they reported the 20-fold increase in incidence rate of microcephaly from the past four years that really spurred on the research and hype about Zika virus. So clearly something is going on, and as more and more evidence comes out linking it to Zika virus, it's becoming more and more likely that there is a causal relationship. So we've known about this virus since the 40s, and it's been well documented in several African countries. Why do you think there was this all of a sudden increase in cases in South America, and what implications might this have for North America or other countries? You know, if you look at a map and look at the timing of when the virus was first discovered in Africa, when the first human cases were in Africa, and the different outbreaks across the Pacific Islands, you can see it spread from Africa eastward across the Pacific and found its way to South America. The hypotheses that are out there about why this outbreak is so much more extensive in South America would be, is the population naive to this kind of virus or related viruses, meaning they don't have certain immunities that maybe people in Africa have because there are related viruses that would give them that immunity? Is there a new mutation or recombination events that are making this strand of the virus more virulent? Those are ideas, but we, we don't know. I think the implications for North America are very similar. We live in a large country that's naive to these sort of viruses. I think the possibility is there. Things that make it different in North America, probably a higher percentage of people live indoors with air conditioning or have screened in homes. Those are some of the things that make Zika virus kind of so easily spread in parts of South America is that the mosquito, um, the Aedes aegypti, actually prefers being indoors. So if doors are open because it's warm, there's no screening, no air conditioning, it's just a kind of perfect setup for the mosquito to enter your home and bite humans. And one of the things I learned uh, during my research is that the Aedes aegypti actually prefers biting humans to other mammals. So it's kind of the perfect vector for this virus. Can you describe what some of the current evidence implicating Zika virus is in the rise in number of cases of fetal microcephaly? It's basically been coming out rapidly, case reports, since December, making the link between Zika virus and microcephaly stronger. They are all case reports at this point, but we have evidence of amniotic fluid testing positive for Zika virus infection in pregnancies where the, the baby have microcephaly. We have evidence of early miscarriages in women who reported symptoms consistent with Zika virus where the fetal remains tested positive for Zika virus. 
We have case report from Slovenia. A woman who had lived in Brazil had a febrile illness in her first trimester. Fetus developed microcephaly on ultrasound at 28 weeks and she underwent an elective termination. They did a completely thorough autopsy and there was Zika virus isolated in the fetal brain tissue and really interestingly, no other tissues, just the brain. We have actually quite a bit of kind of mounting case report evidence that there is a link between Zika virus and microcephaly and the kind of the fetal brain insults. What's known about the pathogenesis of Zika virus and fetal infection? We don't know a lot about the pathogenesis of uh, Zika virus infection for the fetus. It is the evidence we do have from the early investigation in Brazil is that infection in the first trimester is likely the worst in terms of fetal outcomes. And that makes sense. Some other congenital infections, like I mentioned earlier, cytomegalovirus and rubella, that have effects on the fetal brain, you know, those, those effects are worse when the infection is in the first trimester. So I think a lot of information is focused on the finding of fetal microcephaly, well, both fetal as well as infant microcephaly. How are you defining microcephaly in both the prenatal and the neonatal period? That's a really great question. That's actually been kind of a controversial question, not clear, uniform definitions historically. And so the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine actually issued a statement within the last month helping to clarify that issue and kind of looked at some literature even dating back to the 80s to understand kind of what definition makes the most sense in terms of predicting adverse outcomes. And so to go along with SMSM, I think the, the best definition for microcephaly that should be used is three standard deviation below the mean for gestational age. If the fetal, this is for prenatal ultrasound, so if the fetal head circumference is larger than two standard deviations below the mean, we can feel very, very confident that there's not going to be any sort of pathologic microcephaly at birth. On the other end of the spectrum, if the head is smaller than five standard deviations below the mean for gestational age, we can feel pretty confident that there's going to be some clinically significant pathology at birth. But in between there, between the two and the five, it's a scale. If you use a three standard deviation cutoff, even about half of those diagnoses will not have a diagnosis at birth. So as SMFM recommends, if on fetal ultrasound the head is smaller than two standard deviations below the mean, they recommend a detailed ultrasound and follow up in four weeks to kind of see what the trajectory is. If it's getting smaller, staying the same and kind of helping you go that way and saving the diagnosis of microcephaly for three standard deviations below the mean or smaller. So my ultrasound software unfortunately does not report standard deviations of the mean. You suggest in your paper a method that we can use what our typical ultrasound reporting software uses to figure out what standard means are. Can you describe how you would approach defining that less than three standard deviations? So in the paper, we provide tables to help with this problem. We know that the ultrasound software reports in percentiles. So the third standard deviation correlates with roughly about the first percentile. So an easy way to look at it is if your ultrasound software is telling you that the head circumference is greater than the fifth percentile, you really don't have to worry. That won't correlate with less than two standard deviations. So if you're above fifth percentile, you're good to go. If you're below the fifth percentile, then we recommend referring to the tables in our paper, and it will have, based on nomograms that have been previously published, it will have the measurement of head circumference in millimeters by gestational age and tell you how many standard deviations it is from the mean, and you can look at it that way. I think this is extremely helpful, and we're grateful that 
published this. My understanding from some of the reports from South America, because the definition of microcephaly remains variable, that that can affect the true number of cases of microcephaly in the disease. And so I think it's especially helpful in your paper that we support SMFM's recommendations that we have somewhat of a standardized way to, to define this issue. Yeah, I completely agree. Can you describe the recommendations that we're giving for prevention of Zika virus in pregnant women? So we're recommending that pregnant women should avoid any unnecessary travel to Zika virus endemic areas. If you can't avoid travel to these areas, then they need to be really cautious to prevent mosquito bites. And we give the list based off CDC recommendations on the best way to prevent mosquito bites, staying indoors, closed doors, mosquito netting should be used even when indoors. If you're outside, you know, wearing long sleeves and pants, they make permethrin-treated clothing, which is a repellent using an EPA-registered insect repellent like DEET. Those are safe to use when you're pregnant. So those are all ways people can try and avoid mosquito bites. And then in regards to the risk of sexual transmission, given that we just know so little about how that works and what the, the true risks are, the CDC recommends that pregnant women either abstain to completely eliminate the risk of transmission or use condoms correctly and consistently to minimize the risk of sexual transmission if they're either living in an endemic area or their partner is traveling to or has lived in an endemic area. And they recommend that actually for the entirety of the pregnancy. What is the population of patients that are currently at risk for fetal infection and who should be screened or tested for Zika virus infection? So women that are at risk for infection would be, you know, if American women are traveling to these endemic areas, obviously the women that live in the endemic areas. And again, kind of unclear, but the risk of that sexual contact with men that either live or have traveled recently to endemic areas. So in terms of screening, every OBGYN should be asking their patient about their travel history. And if the woman has traveled to a endemic area, depending on symptomatology and things like that, blood testing and or ultrasound um, is recommended. And there's somewhat complicated, but there are algorithms that help obstetricians navigate that. So in a patient that we identify as potentially having an exposure to Zika virus, either through travel or through contact with a partner, what are the recommendations and the tests that are available for screening for maternal infection as well as fetal disease? Basically, you can treat a woman who's had sexual contact with a man at risk of infection almost the same as a, a pregnant woman who's traveled to a high-risk area. They're managed very similarly. If a woman's traveled to a high-risk area and she's symptomatic or she reports symptoms consistent with Zika virus infection, you know, fever, headache, conjunctivitis, rash, she should really have blood testing and ultrasounds. And even asymptomatic women, the CDC kind of tentatively says they, quote-unquote, can be tested. That's kind of left to, I feel like, the discretion of the obstetrician only because our testing is not perfect. And so an asymptomatic woman, if we do a blood test, I can't tell her the rate of false positives or false negatives. We know that they're substantial because the serologic testing is just not perfect. There's a lot of cross-reactivity with other flavored viruses, and so it's just kind of a difficult decision to make. But following the CDC recommendations, if a woman's traveled to a high-risk area, Definitely, if they're symptomatic, they should have their blood tested. The tests that are available is a reverse transcriptase PCR test of, in serum. This test for 
genomic material of the virus in the blood, and it really only stays positive roughly four to seven days from symptom onset, so in that cute viremic phase. So if you catch a woman in that time period, that's great. Um, a lot of times, though, they're going to say, well, about three weeks ago, you know, I had symptoms, and now I've read about Zika virus online. What should I do? And once you're out of that acute window, the only test that we have is the serologic testing, so looking for Zika virus IgM. Like I said, there's problems with cross-reactivity, false positives, et cetera. It's just a, a technically difficult test that's really only being done at the CDC and a very few number of local health departments. There's other follow-up tests the CDC will do to try and clarify whether the diagnosis of Zika virus is true or not, but it's just not a perfect test. So, you know, the fear is that we might cause some undue anxiety for women with some of these tests, but that's the approach to screening. Do you have a recommendation for timing of ultrasounds and gestational age that you should do ultrasounds to look for fetal microcephaly or in a patient who potentially has exposure? I think the first ultrasound being that routine 18-week anatomy ultrasound makes sense. It gets you in before that 20-week mark. And also, it's very uncommon to be able to see microcephaly that early in pregnancy from the data that is out there and kind of consistent with other causes of microcephaly, we usually don't see it on ultrasound until you're closer to the 28-30 week time frame. And so I think starting with the anatomy ultrasound and then the serial ultrasounds every four weeks, depending on the situation, makes sense. You're looking at the trajectory. Is the head circumference getting smaller? Is it stable? And then, of course, if you get below that three standard deviation is when we would talk about offering amniocentesis to test the amniotic fluid for Zika virus. So amniocentesis would be recommended if you see fetal abnormality. Any other indications that you would recommend in amniocentesis? For a woman that has the risk factor, meaning she's traveled or has lived or has been with a partner and either has positive blood testing or positive or concerning ultrasound findings, those would be the indications for an amniocentesis. And you know, SMFN recommends after 15 weeks you know, and, and proper counseling about the risk of fetal loss and and really our kind of incomplete knowledge about Zika virus transmission. Like, for example, we don't actually know if you have a positive amniocentesis what the complication rates for the fetus will be. So let's say a woman comes in, complains of symptoms, has a positive blood test, normal ultrasound findings, and she opts for an amniocentesis and it's positive for Zika virus. We can't even say for sure that she's going to have an affected fetus. So it just it makes the counseling very difficult. In women in the United States who are contemplating pregnancy, what are your recommendations regarding Zika infection? In the United States at this time, I don't think there's any reason to delay pregnancy. There's no local transmission of Zika virus. Definitely delay baby moons to Mexico. Uh, you don't need to be traveling to endemic areas if you're contemplating pregnancy. Do these recommendations differ from the recommendations for women in Zika endemic countries? Yes, several countries in South America have actually recommended to their population that they delay pregnancy, and they didn't really put a timeline on there. They didn't say the word indefinitely, but that's how I read it, that until we understand more about Zika virus, its effects on fetal development, and see if we can get a better hold on vector control. Um, they basically recommended that women avoid pregnancy. As the epidemic progresses, what are some of the current and future research needs or areas of investigation that you think are going to be critically important over the next year or two? There are just so many unanswered questions that really we kind of need all fields working on it. Clearly, epidemiology is important to try and understand the scope of the problem, clarify the causal links between infection and fetal adverse outcomes, especially long-term outcomes. 
we need better diagnostic testing, as I alluded to earlier, and then basic virology. We don't understand the pathogenesis very well, which makes it hard to come up with antiviral treatments, of course. And then vector control is going to be a huge area of research, since right now that's kind of the only way we know how to prevent this infection would be to stop the mosquito from spreading it. And then longer term, I think definitely not within a year's time frame, but antiviral and vaccine development, that needs to happen. It just probably, we're not going to have those for a couple of years. So what other resources are available, either tracking this disease in the United States or where you can refer patients for more information or where physicians can get more information on how to have their patients tested or stay up to date on this virus? The CDC website has a ton of information, both for patients and for physicians. They just announced that they have developed a voluntary registry to collect information about U.S. pregnant women with confirmed Zika virus infection and their infants. So I think the link online is not posted yet, but that should be coming soon. And any healthcare provider caring for a pregnant woman who has converted Zika virus infection should mention this registry because this will be a great way to collect information and learn more about the disease here in the United States. Dr. Mars, thank you very much for joining us today and for contributing this summary and review for those out in practice. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you so much. Honored to be here. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.